0: Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL Radio. And if you're listening to us on podcast, we hope that your finger will stray to that plus sign button, that follow button, that subscribe button on whatever platform you're on, so that you can follow us and get all the new episodes of Beyond Politics. I'm Matt Robeson. I was really honored to be invited this week onto Dr. Rod Graham's show. He's an associate professor in sociology and criminal justice at old dominion university on twitter he goes by your neighborhood sociologist he's a sociologist and he's really interesting he brings All of this unique perspective, he really breaks issues down in in such a thoughtful way. And from time to time, he has a live Twitter show. He puts it up on YouTube, and he interviews people, and they break down issues and ideas together. And we had a really fun time doing that this week. We got into a fascinating conversation about deplorables and insufferables and persuadables and why Democrats chase bright, shiny objects. and what grade does Joe Biden really deserve these days anyway, and all kinds of really interesting topics. So we wanted to bring it to you on Beyond Politics. Again, thanks
1: so much for listening and hope you enjoy. My name is Rod Graham, and this is another episode of my Being series, and I'm here with Matt Robeson. Before I start talking with Matt, let me describe what this series is about. So with this series, I like to understand the person, how they came to be, and then also how they think about some social and political and cultural issues. And Matt is perfect for this. In fact, he's he's one of the one of the guests who I think is the most informed. And I can't wait to hear some of the things that he has to say. Really, Matt. I mean, I mean, I was looking at your your history, and I was like, wow, this guy has got to have a lot of a lot of knowledge. So it's a lot really of pressure,
0: excited. man. It's a lot of pressure. <laughs> Always under promise and over deliver. I so- see tell them all about the warts and the peccadilloes and the the
1: felonies and all that stuff first I see. well i'm sure that you're going to deliver so i'm i'm so confident i don't have to under under promise right uh, this is really good in fact what i'm going to do is read his background and i wanted to crib it this is from your website because a lot of times people they, they use a lot of words and you want to kind of crib it But yours was so well written. It was like, bang, 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 bang. There's nothing I could really take out. And I was like, okay, this guy really knows what he's doing. So so I'm just going to read it to give the viewers a sense of who you are. And then I'll ask you to say more about yourself. So Matt Robeson is a writer, podcast host, and political analyst who focuses on trends in demographics, psychology, policy, and economics that are shaping American politics. And he's very good at that. He's the co-host of the Beyond Politics podcast, which I was on once. Oh no! I, was I on a different one? Because I don't remember talking with the Congressman Paul
0: Hodes. Some so, of them, some of them we do together. Some of them I do solo. We'll we'll have you back, and and you'll get to do a run with Paul, which is fun. Okay. Okay. Yeah.
1: So he's the co-host of the Beyond Politics podcast, which is doing quite well now. Good for good for Matt. He spent a decade working on Capitol Hill as a legislative director and chief of staff to three members of Congress, and also worked as a senior advisor campaign manager, and consultant on several congressional races. In 2012, he ran a come from behind race that made national headlines as the biggest surprise win of the election. Now, that, that come from behind race, was that for state senate? That was the US Congress. That was John Tierney, at the time, well-known congressman, and well, that was, that was that race was a whole ball of wax. <laughs> okay, awesome. He went on to work as policy director in the New Hampshire State Senate, successfully helping to coordinate the legislative effort to pass Medicaid expansion. Very good. Matt holds a bachelor's degree in economics from Swarthmore College and a master's degree in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. So, Matt, in a way, you're you're those elites that are calling these other people out in the in the middle of the country deplorables. Is that is that right? I've met a few. I, I, I know those elites I, 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 I yes I, I've run into a couple. I see so, so so have I. He lives with his wife and three children in Amherst Massachusetts. So so that's coming from your your website and so I mean it, it's a great summary of what you've done professionally. But I want to know a little bit about how you decided to get into this whole political arena why choose something so stressful right So what's your backstory? Well, how did I uh,
0: for video viewers, you can see the flag, the, the American flag behind me. Now, I, I've, I've gotten some criticism for maybe feeling a little too MAGA for having this behind me. And I look, I'm a patriotic guy, but the reason I have this behind me is it's personal. This is a, a flag that flew over the US Capitol and it was flown on my behalf by US Congressman Charlie Rangel, who represented Harlem for, I don't know, mm-hmm. 40, 50 years. Really an amazing guy actually he kind of he he titled his autobiography his backstory was that he was serving in korea during the the coldest winter when so many u.s service members were dying and he was he had a moment where he was lying in a ditch with wounded comrades among him they were all starving they were all freezing and he titled his autobiography and i haven't had a bad day since and that has really informed my entire approach to everything (laughs) in life i feel very very blessed Charlie Wrangell flew this flag over the U.S. Capitol because he had worked with my father on legislation that that tried to incentivize getting job training for disadvantaged workers. That was my father's thing. My father died mm-hmm. in 1986. And so Charlie flew this. And I had this flag, and he entered a, a statement in the congressional record. And those those things touched me so much as a young man that. I just always felt a pull toward congress toward mm-hmm. public service and your, it, your father
1: it, was in politics as well
0: he was a he was an overseas journalist he mm-hmm. the 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 backstory with him is if, if you've ever read the steve jobs biography by walter isaacson mm-hmm. on page 14 he discusses a seminal moment in young steve jobs's life where he sees a cover of Life magazine showing starving children in Nigeria during the civil war known as the Biafra War. Mm-hmm. And he went and questioned his his priest, how, how could this be? And he didn't receive a satisfactory answer. And that set him on his lifelong journey toward alternative systems of thought that may have actually harmed him in the end because he didn't believe in Western medicine. That cover photo was, was shot by my father who spent a lot of time in Africa covering civil wars there, a lot of time in, in Eastern Europe. And so he, he, that was his perspective. He later through several machinations got roped into doing work in Congress. He wasn't, he wasn't really in politics, but he did get involved kind of from, from that angle. Cause he really believed in job training and
1: opportunity. Okay. Okay. So, so, so you, 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 you got into politics. Was there anything else? Like, like you want to be a baseball player or something or. Astronaut.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, I I thought I was going to be a psychology major. And then I thought I was going to be a political science major, kind of, kind of similar. And then I fell into economics, which turned out to be, I think a lot of people have gone through this kind of a process in college where you find the thing that's your thing. And as soon as I found my thing, that really clicked for me. It was really only later after I'd had some, some jobs in economics, and then I went to grad school, and I, I realized there's a pathway here. And I had mentors who inspired me. One of them was, a am a Democrat, one of them was Republican Congressman Mickey Edwards, who was one of the right-hand men for Newt Gingrich. But he was and is a very thoughtful, reasonable guy, just different ideology from mine. And mm-hmm. he, he really helped turn me on to the idea of I could do this. I could I could be a congressional staffer and I could get to be part of some of the personal acts of making a difference in people's lives that I had felt through Charlie Rangel's work and also bigger enterprises in trying to make policy and 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 do the kinds of things that only government has the power to do to make a difference in people's lives. So that's, that's what kind of got me going down that path.
1: Okay. So I want to eventually get to your thoughts about the Democrats as they are now, the the left, but I want to ask you about one of your jobs, and that is as a campaign manager. Now I asked, I'm asking that because I think a lot of folks, including myself, we might be political animals in that we want government to reflect our values and we'll vote that way or our beliefs or the things that we we want done in the world. But we're not clear about the machinations and all these things that go on but behind closed doors. And I think this notion of a campaign manager is kind of good to center on. So what does a campaign manager do?
0: I think machinations is a great word for it because I was in a, a training for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee back in 2006. And James Carville was the guest speaker, came in, talked to all of us. We were all bright, young, bushy tailed young operative types and getting into the campaign game. And he said, most people think campaigns, you sit around, you drink coffee, you talk strategy, you got one thumb in your mouth. It just
1: sounds like that's how he would start.
0: Yeah, right. (laughs) And his tagline was, "You're, you're talking strategy. You got one thumb in your mouth, other thumb up your butt. You switch them every half hour. You think you're accomplishing something. And I I, I have no idea what that means. That's James Carville. I have no idea what that means, but it really (laughs) stuck with me because it does capture something that we do have kind of a view that you're going to look over a map and you're going to say, let's go there. That's the place. There's a little of that. There is definitely some of that, I mean, understanding the numbers and but it's, it, it is much more your word, the machinations. One mm-hmm. of the smartest campaign consultants I ever worked with, one of the most able and creative, on that race that we were talking about, that come from behind win in 2012, where everyone wrote us off. We were we were picked by roll call, the, the Capitol Hill newspaper, as the number one race most likely to lose. <laughs> and <laughs> when we won and He's, that, that consultant said to me, you guys won this race six months ago on a spreadsheet. And he gave me a compliment. He said, that budget that you put together, that spreadsheet where you planned out how you were going to deploy all of your resources week by week, you tracked everything you were going to do. That's where you won the race. And it was the best version of that that I've, I've ever seen now I, i'm, I'm going to sprain my shoulder patting myself on the back here but the point is i think that has a lot more to do with being an effective campaign operative an effective campaign manager than doing highfalutin strategy there are plenty of really super smart people that i've worked Whoa. with like our, our pol- the pollster i worked with most closely he's actually been a guest on my show he's coming back in a few weeks john anzalone he's joe biden's pollster I know Mm -hmm. people like that. Believe me, someone like that is a much better strategist than I am. I'm comfortable with that. That's not my job. I'm not, if you're the conductor in the orchestra, you're not the best violinist and you're not the best percussionist, but you know how to make all the pieces fit together. You know Mm -hmm. how to form a plan. You know how to manage the candidate, managing the candidate. You know, that's where that psychology comes in. You need to, you need to have a lot of skills that you don't think about and that don't strictly fall under that. Oh, it's about strategy. Logistics eats strategy for breakfast. And every race that I've been on that's been successful has won based on logistics. It's grinding, it's doing the little things. It's it's the grunt work that's thankless, but that that's that's where the winning edge is. Because it's not I I have yet to, it's funny that I'm in a communications profession now because I don't believe in magic words. I don't believe there's a magic combination of words that will unlock things. A winning message that is the one platonic ideal
1: of a message. Mm-hmm. I think it's in the mechanics, the machinations, as you put it. Okay, you you mentioned that spreadsheet. I thought that was interesting, and and the the idea is that you're de- you're deploying resources so efficiently. What are the resources?
0: It's your money and your time. That's. I mean, look, in the universe, there's really only one thing you learn in economics is there's really only one limited resource. And it's and there are so many things you can do when you're running a congressional office or a campaign. It's It's all politics in a sense. There are so many things you can do with deploying your time. And I mean the time of all the people who are involved because it is a team sport, team, team, team all the way. And there are so many activities you could be doing at any time, different interest groups you could be meeting with different. You could be focusing on raising money. You could be focusing on writing legislation, giving speeches, visiting certain key places, getting photo ops. You could be doing, and there are so many flavors and combinations, activities that, that people can be devoting themselves to. Well, what's the, what's the best, most efficient combination? It's, it's very very hard to know and it's it's as much art as science and so i'm not saying that my spreadsheet or any one plan is is the ideal plan or the best plan but being able to being able to limit your mistake look i'm a big basketball fan right i'm I'm rooting for the celtics why do the celtics lose turnovers mistakes well mostly turnovers so, what you're doing in in deploying your resources is you're gonna make mistakes. You gotta limit them. You're mm-hmm. gonna not spend efficiently. You, you gotta you gotta limit that. I'll give you a concrete example, if you like. Sure. In that tyranny race, we were because there was so much prognostication about the fact that we were gonna lose, there's this weird effect in politics where people like to back a winner, which is why the AOC, for example. AOC raised twenty million dollars in her last race, and she won by fifty points. There is no way on on God's green <laughs> earth that she's going to lose. People like to back the winner, and so our opponent and the the guy I was working for, great guy, the kind of guy you want in government, so smart, so dedicated, so hardworking. And by his, I hope he's listening to this because John, you'll agree with me, not the most gifted politician, a great public servant not a natural politician. So we we were getting outraised. We weren't going to have as much to deploy. So if you're overwhelmed in a in a battle, you've got to deploy the forces you have more intelligently than the other side. Mm-hmm. And what we yeah. were able to figure out was there's a particular mechanism you can use where you can basically double your money, double the impact of your money, get more money from the from the party if you run certain types of ads and that's what we did and we figured out a very smart mixture of of message and the kinds of ads we could run that basically made our money stretch twice as far so even though we had half as much money we were able to communicate just as much as the other side we were able to put all the all of our battle battle assets on the field to maximum effect
1: wow That's awesome. Okay. So I have two thoughts in my mind. One is like, man, that's really cool. that's really smart. And I feel that just, just from being, being I'm a a professor, but I'm doing a lot of administrative things and this idea of, okay, you don't have a lot of resources, so you got to deploy them smartly. And, and I mean, I get that. And I feel that on on the other hand, I'm like, you mean to tell me it's not the inspiring politician getting up there (laughs) and rallying citizens and the troops and everything. Not that. Man, it is some of that. That's more romantic.
0: Yeah. Look, I mean, you got to have a good candidate. You got to You got to, Well, look, you got to have a, at least a middle. You got to have a candidate with skills. I mean, I, I was talking about John before. I mean, he's got some skills. He was a member of Congress for mm-hmm. sixteen years. You don't just you don't just have a career like that by accident. But there is. Look, you're a professor. You work with young people all the time, and you need you definitely you know this professionally. You're, you're trying to get the best out of these people. You've got to get the best out of your team. So there is a psychology. My, one of my first experiences in politics, I volunteered on the 1992 Bill Clinton campaign. He was appearing in Philadelphia and he was organizing a press conference with all these generals and admirals because he was getting pummeled at the time for being weak on the military, weak on foreign policy. So he, he wanted to get a lot of top brass up there on camera with him showing, see, me, military, good. And so, my job as a, as a young college kid was I was driving, I was chauffeuring some of these generals and admirals to and from the airport. By the way, I met, met Bill Clinton backstage in the green room there, and I was so thunderstruck. Talk about not being nimble on your feet. Like I shake out, I, 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 I reach out to Shake, and I, I wanted to say something awesome, like, We're all with you, Governor, or Go get them, sir. And what came out was, governor uh, and he kind of he did this Bill Clinton thing where he he, he did the the handshake that he drew me in close he's thanks buddy and I was just like oh my God I love you anyway on the way back from that press conference I was in the car with a couple other staffers and we were taking a general his name was General Comfort which is coincidental and we're going over that big bridge over the river in Philadelphia and the driver got confused and he thought that the emergency brake was engaged so he tried to disengage it and he engaged it it was backwards and so we spun out we did a 480 on the middle of the bridge we could have shot off the bridge we didn't traffic is veering around us our hearts are going about 180 beats per minute finally he like the driver kind of gets us back on course we're limping along we're i, I thought i was about to faint and general comfort Speaks up from the back seat and says, that reminds me of a time I was running from the cops when I was 16 in my car. And he tells this whole story about running from the cops. It was hilarious. I won't belabor it. By the time he was done with that story, we're calm, we're laughing. And I thought, well, that's leadership right there. Mm -hmm. That's understanding the psychology of young people and how to channel their emotions and their focus in the right direction that's what you do as a professor as you work with young people that's that's what a good campaign manager who's working with young people who have a ton of energy and just need a little bit of focus and direction
1: that's what a good campaign manager does too hmm. okay let's thank you for that that's that's wonderful those stories so i don't know general comfort but that's a cool name i might look him up and see see what, right, what it he sounds like a about. pseudonym
0: that's not real right <laughs> it's like that's <a> <laughs> exposition it's
1: like really really <laughs> Okay, I'm going to I'm going to read a a quote that I pulled from I got this from something you wrote on Medium, but I imagine that it was published somewhere else first. But uh, but here's the quote. There are indeed deplorables out there. This is in reference to Hillary Clinton's infamous statement, basket of deplorables. There are also persuadables to win. Progressives need to win the long game with persuadables. And we don't drive social change among persuadables by being insufferables. So we've got persuadables, we've got deplorables, persuadables, and insufferables here. Now, kind of unpack that. What are you trying to say?
0: I have a friend who is a young congressional and campaign staffer. His name is Trevor. Real name, not a pseudonym. He told me one of my favorite stories. He was walking down the street and a random guy walked up to him. And said, you look like Eli Manning, a better version, no homo, which was the kind of thing one said at the time. This was like 2008. And uh, my friend Trevor says, well, I am a homo, so I'll take it. And the other guy says, oh, right on. And then they fist bumped and they walked their separate ways. And what really stuck with me about that story is that that was a moment where Trevor could have been very offended. He could have applied what the activist Stetson Kennedy got the country to do in fighting the Ku Klux Klan, which was to apply frown power, trying to give social sanction, the negative version of sanction, to unacceptable behavior, to make certain views unacceptable and to make people feel shame for them. So Trevor could have shamed this guy, but he has a positive interaction. He decides... I'm not going to, I'm not going to see this kind of ham-fisted, no homo moment and judge him by that. I'm going to meet him where he is, not look down on him. And what happens? They fist bump, they smile, they go their separate ways. And I think to myself, how does this person now feel about this interaction that he had with Trevor? How does he feel about gay people? now i don't know what his views were going in maybe this was just like a habit statement i mean people used to say that kind of thing we, we we try not to these days and i think also about the massive massive social change that we underwent in this country you can look at it in the polling look it up it's stark we went from to marriage equality gay marriage running about 65 percent against 30, 35% for to flipping in about five it's or amazing. 10 years. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, how did we do it? How did we do it? It's because we offered America collectively an inclusive, positive, non judgmental vision of hey, gay folks, they're your neighbors. They're the people you love on TV. They're funny. They're awesome. They're, they're, the queer eye for the straight guy, guys who will make you look fantastic and make your girlfriend really into you, whatever it is. And it was not judgmental. And so what I was trying to capture in that was there are deplorables out there. Deplorables are people who are not open to Mm -hmm. that kind of change in their hearts. They're they're not going to budge. Okay, there is a segment of that. And that's what Hillary was trying to say. She's trying to say there, there are people we're not going to get through to. But we're not going to get through to the people like this guy on the street that Trevor met, who are persuadable, whose hearts can change like we've seen happen in America. It's clear we have the capacity for that. We're not going to get through to those people if we want to affect a change in the lexicon, a change in in how we treat one another, a change in our values. We're not going to get through to them if we disdain them, if we look down on them. Frown power will not work anymore. We have to try smile power. They're persuadable. We're not gonna get through to them if we're insufferable to them. And the final thing I'll say is, as usual, South Park captured this perfectly, absolutely perfectly. They did an episode where one of the characters gets really PC and his wife says, ever since you joined this PC thing, all you do is bully people. You wait for them to say, anything improper so you can jump down their throats for whatever words he or she used and he responds he or she is a genderphobic microaggression you are a bigot and so that's what we have to avoid I'm not saying that we we can't you know try to challenge or overcome problematic culture problematic words mm-hmm, offensive mm-hmm. things I don't I'm not trying to advocate for hey people who are being aggressed against you just need to bear it in silence. We just need to be strategic about it. We have to think about what our objectives are. If we want change, we need a little bit more strategy and patience, that's all.
1: Yeah, you know what, I think you're right. And I've kind of gone through a change myself and how to think about this. So I'm one of those folks who, I don't know if I believe in civility as much as I do a sort of, or maybe I believe in strategic incivility. Maybe that's <laughs> yes, better. In that, in that, okay, there are indeed deplorables out there, right? Uh, people who are resistant to change and just acting like they don't exist, and 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 being civil with those folks. Okay, fine if you want to do that, but I'm not going to. If I see someone who I think is being a bigot, and I actually really believe it through some clear thing, then uh, sure, I'm going to say, "Look, man, you're being you're being racist, or you're being homophobic, or you're being trans." I'll, I'll say it. But I think what's happened is we've expanded or a lot of folks on the left have expanded what we think we should call a bigot to, to, to any kind of difference and and I just find that to be very problematic. It sort of came to me a little bit after the Christmas holidays and I was in this uh, I, I was I was in this chat room with a group of folks who are very left probably left to me and and I realized everything that these folks were saying would suggest that everyone in my family is a, is a bigot in some way. I'm like, no they're not just because they have a little different view about gender roles or or or, or they might be a little hesitant and what's going on with the, the trans activism doesn't mean that they hate any of those groups or anything like that. And so I said, all right, I, I need to put the brakes on this a little bit. We've the, the 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 acceptability the the norm of calling all these things bigot is just problematic and it does push people away and it is insufferable. I, I, I agree with you 100%. Well, And as a sociologist, you clearly
0: appreciate the fact that we all respond to social cues and we've been giving each other very powerful, psychoactive social cues through social media for about a decade now through the inception of the boy, that's a that's a fraught word right there of the like and share and retweet features, which came into existence in 2009 and 2012 respectively. And so we're giving people, just like in the casino, you win, the lights go off, ding, 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 ding. You get that little dopamine hit in your brain. We're giving people likes and thumbs ups and shares and hugs and whatever online for oh you just dunked on that you owned them online that's right it It
1: incentivizes
0: that behavior yeah it incentivizes it and this is what barack obama said right it's like well you struck a blow for social justice today um because you owned that person online and look i'm with you i am with you that we have seen this movie in history you have to stand up to bigotry you have to stand up to vicious injustice of course i agree and it takes bravery to do that. And so people should be applauded for doing that. But I, I, I this is where words kind of fail me because it, it feels like we need to reset our incentive structures so that people are a little smarter, we give each other a little bit more grace because there is such a blowback boomerang effect of, like my friend Trevor on the street, he he comes down like a ton of bricks on that guy. It's a totally different interaction and the aggregation of, of those kinds of interactions all before you know it, you've got a MAGA deplorable
1: type that is that you can't get back. Yeah, I'm, I am I want to show you something before I move on, because I mean, the, the data just kind of backs this up. So the listeners won't be able to see this, so I'll try and try and narrate it. But but what I'm what I'm sharing with Matt here is some research done by Pew and it's all wait a minute. I want to make sure I get it. Yeah, that's it. Some research done by Pew where it's a political typology, where it's a random sample of respondents and they ask them a series of questions to figure out where they stand on the political spectrum. So you've got two extremes. You've got the what the Pew is calling the faith and flag conservatives. That's 10 percent of the general public. And on the other end, you've got you've got what Pew calls the progressive left. I wouldn't have used that. I think the progressive left is a bit. It's not just that extreme. But anyway, so that's the that's the far end to the left. Now, what Matt's saying and what I agree with is that, look, you've got people who, sure, maybe on the far right of that spectrum can't be reached, but you've got so many people um, that we know are out there. Right, This isn't just speculation who are in the center, maybe center right, that can be had, like, like these folks can be had. I mean, if you're someone like me who thinks that the left has the best policies and, and has the best way forward for society, I think we can reach those people. We just can't be insufferable.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. And look, from a message standpoint, I just feel like what Democrats end up saying, and I'm translating here, turns into, (laughs) to, to many people, what it sounds like is you are a bigot. And you're so ignorant that you don't even realize how disgusting you are. But good news, we're here to help you, you're welcome. And I just don't see that getting through. Now I'm I'm, I'm being a little tongue in cheek about it. Right, 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 right. But one of the reasons why Barack Obama was so successful, I mean, there are many, is that he gave us all a way to feel good about ourselves. This feeling like, you know what? if we elect this man it doesn't make up for a shameful history we have in this country but it, it it's our way of saying we're, we're moving past this and i will feel good about myself for being a part of that and that's why you did see this outpouring of pensive joy mm-hmm. among many when he won because it was it was feeling good about ourselves the thing that Donald Trump offers people is you can feel good about yourself. Now, the views that he ascribes to and the things that they feel good about, I'm not that's not great. That's not great. But you can at least begin to understand. Well, you can definitely understand my gosh, with as a sociologist. I I mean, let me pose that as a question back to you. Is that right? Like, is that essentially? What he's offering to them when he says everything's too PC, like I can come out and say this. You don't have to feel bad about yourself. You can feel good about
1: yourself. You're yeah.
0: great. <laughs> like, is that is that sort of the, is is that the alchemy that he's performing?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I think what he's doing is he's offering them dignity. Dignity. Um, that's the, yeah, that's
0: yeah. the perfect word. That's the word.
1: Well, yeah, but there's been a couple of, it's not in my head right now, but there's been a couple of books written about this. One of the best critiques this is a philosopher from Harvard, Michael Sandel, I, I forgotten the name of the book, but but he makes, a, he makes the argument that both the left and right tend to focus in the past, up until the Trump campaign, focused on things that didn't necessarily connect with working class people that kind of left them behind. The left does it in the way that we're talking about here, the PC stuff. The right did it as well by focusing on wealthier americans um and what donald trump did was he he tapped into that feeling of being left behind of of not being respected and he gave them dignity Um, Mm -hmm. and i kind of like that critique and it's, it's a little bit it's a little bit softer than than saying that okay well donald trump is appealing to their racist bigoted notions i'm sure there's a part of that in there but i think that a lot of people just wanted a guy who was speaking to them and at least appearing to see them. I mean, I don't know how, how true that how true that was, but but yeah, that that's kind of my take on it. Well, that lines
0: up with the political analysis that you see from people like Elaine Kmark, who was on the Beyond Politics show a couple of months ago. And she she's written an updated report for democrats got a lot of coverage in the press if if people are following this when you're into politics just you can google it you can google it but this is the exact analysis that she puts forward and the democrats kind of fool themselves into thinking that economic issues will trump bad choice of word will, will yeah. trump culture issues she said it's the other way around and now it's very literal culture trumps economics every time and it feels like that's kind of the analysis that you're you're pointing to there, is that this, this basic feeling of, I accept you, I like you, you're awesome. You don't have to change who you are. This makes you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable too. I'm like you. You know what? You may not like everything I say and do. I know I may be a little ridiculous. When I pretend that I'm shoveling coal, I may look like a cartoon, whatever it is, but I don't look down on you. I respect you. These yep. other people, they are you. You said at the top of the show, like these these Ivy League elites, and it's like there's 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 a truthiness in that, and
1: you can see the appeal. All right, let's let's kind of move on a little bit here to something else you wrote. You wrote about Democrats chasing shiny objects, just just focusing on the the the, the, the national elections, I guess. Kind of unpack that a little bit. How are Democrats chasing shiny objects?
0: I think as a party. We have a lot of ghosts in our house Mm -hmm. We're 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 living with the ghost of Martin Luther King Jr. We're living with the ghost of LBJ. It's a lot of it's a lot of acronyms. We're living with the ghost of MLK, LBJ and RBG. We tend to think of change and what we want. As happening in broad strokes in, as Bernie would say, big, bold legislation or landmark judicial rulings and. That does happen sometimes, but most of the time it happens, it's like the uh, the poem, peace comes dropping slow, change comes dropping slow. And it's like what we were talking about on campaigns before, It's it's not a lot of highfalutin strategy stuff, it's down in the weeds and it's a piece at a time. So while we tend to think about landmark legislation like the Build Back Better bill, which is the big shiny object that Ezra Klein was speaking about. Most real change happens with a lot of small stuff that we never think about. One of my one of the bills I'm really proud of writing and and working to get passed, obviously it's the member of congress him or herself who who passes it, but I was working for one member of congress from Maine starting in in 2002 and I worked for Five years on a bill to create a regional development commission to invest in poor rural areas in New England where people were leaving. It's kind of the same type of poverty we think about in the industrial Midwest and in Appalachia. Well, it happens in other areas of the country, too, including in the ice belt in in the far northeast of of the country. And there are counties where out migration is, is in the double digits. And so they're losing young people. They have no jobs. And I, I wanted to create, and the member of Congress I was working for wanted to create a federal entity to invest economically in places like that. Well, I, I worked on it for five years, trying at the staff level to write the bill and build coalitions and get the, find the right legislative vehicle to pass it. And all this stuff doesn't make a lot of headlines. And finally, when I was working for my now co-host, Paul Hodes, when he was a congressman from New Hampshire, we slipped it into a larger agriculture appropriations bill and we got it passed. And we had to create a coalition. We had, to, we had to get two other commissions passed at the same time so that we could get enough votes and enough supporters from enough places. We got it passed. And then the first year, it had half a million dollars in funding, half a million dollars. Since then, the, the the funding has gone up and up and up. And over the last 10 years, it's invested something on the order of $80 million. There are hundreds, if not thousands of people who have roads and broadband and clean energy investments hmm. and jobs, jobs, jobs today across four states because of the existence of that commission. I'm not trying to take the personal credit for that, but right, it's right, an example right. of you would not have heard of this most people in in government because i then worked in state government hadn't heard of this entity but this is this is where the action is happening if you read michael lewis and his book the fifth risk most of the action in the federal government is happening in agencies people making decisions to try to make people's lives better off people you would never hear of so my point is that that's true in government. We chase shiny objects, and it's true in campaigns as well. We, we're funding the challenger to Marjorie Taylor Greene to the tune of $5 million. is something Jason Sattler wrote about on the editorial board, which you and I both write for. Well, this challenger, bless his heart, has no chance, right? Right. And at the same time, we sp- we're spending $5 million there, $20 million to, for, for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to win by 50 points. 70% of all local races in this country, where a lot of the real change happens, where protecting elections happens, 70% of local races go uncontested. We can't even yeah, get a candidate. I read that in, in that piece. I, I'm like, what?
1: That's amazing. I mean, right. I mean, I- <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. It just makes no sense. I mean, are we that apathetic or people don't know? I mean, is it that
0: you're apathetic or indifferent? I don't know and I don't care. I I mean, uh, it's (laughs) the in 2020, the Democratic Party spent $50 million combined on all the state legislative races across the country. We spent seven times more than that $350 million on winning the U.S. House. Just one more example, my old buddy from Capitol Hill, an awesome dude, Jamie Harrison may be familiar to some people. He's the chair of the, of the democratic party. Now, great guy worked with him in Congress and he ran for us Senate in South Carolina against Lindsey Graham. Look, I bad wanted to beat Lindsey Graham. Okay. And I gave myself way too much money to to (laughs) Jamie Harrison. I love Jamie Harrison. I was gonna give him money. I mean, they got me because it was a fundraiser where they had Mark Hamill as the headliner. Of course, I'm gonna give Luke Skywalker money to go to my friend Jamie's <laughs> campaign. So I gave I gave way more than I sh- than uh-huh. I, I I should have. I hope my wife's not listening to this. But Jamie, I, I love him, but he lost by 14 points because we weren't really gonna win that race.
1: And oh, you know what? I, I'm from South Carolina, and so oh, I, didn't I know I really- that. Yes, yes, yes. I I remember. It seems like there was some optimism about that guy. I had optimism. I had. I had the belief. There was a sense I thought that he may have been competitive in that. But but anyway, even even still, I get your point. I mean, uh, what was the realistic (laughs) chances that that he was going to unseat Lindsey Graham?
0: Or look, I I don't regret my decision because part of your political giving is like you're my friend. I'm giving you money. End of story. Mm -hmm. But if if we had given. Just let me put it this way. If we had given just of the, I don't know, 15% less to Jamie, I don't think it would have changed the outcome in that race very much, but we would have increased by 50% the amount of money we gave to state legislative races. Don't forget that all the gerrymandering, the the takeover, the, the Tea Party takeover in 2010 that the Republican Party engineered at the state legislative level, that was financed by $30 million. $30 million in total. It was a scheme devised by Karl Rove. And we talk about this in depth on my show on Beyond Politics with the former Ohio Democratic chair, David Pepper, $30 million. And he got all that leverage. So if we had taken just about that amount of money, about 15% of what Jamie raised and put it into state legislative races in 2020, who knows? we might have had a much bigger impact. That's what I mean by chasing the shiny objects rather than doing the ground level work that's so important.
1: Okay. And I I think I said, so you quoted Ezra Klein in a recent editorial board piece who, who said that. I didn't say that at the beginning, but yeah, yeah, I, I that was interesting to me. I, I never thought about it this way. It makes, it makes sense to me. I might need to pay more attention to, I mean, a part of me wants to be in some sort of, have some kind of impact at the local level, but it just it just never stays in my head. You turn on CNN, then all of a sudden you're looking at what's going on on Capitol Hill, and you forget about what's happening at the at the local level. So, well,
0: here's what you can do. Here's what all, all the viewers and listeners can do. You can Google it. Unfortunately, now it's on the editorial board, which again I, people should subscribe to that. Then you'll get all these things. But you there's also a free version. Just Google it. It's on Alternet, um, and right. under my name, Matt Robeson, and You can read and I put a ton of practical suggestions for how you can easily make more of an impact on the state and local level where you can give. And most simple rule of thumb is if you're going to give to a federal candidate, make a rule for yourself. You're going to give that amount more. Make it easy. Give to the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee for the Democrats. That's easy. Or I give some specific individual races and places you can give to or people can run yourself. Go check out Run For Something, an organization founded by Amanda Littman, another previous guest on Beyond Politics. Oh yes, I checked that out. I did. Yeah. And there she's great and the organization is great and people can get in the game themselves.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's good advice. I, I went to Littman's page. It said young people, so I left it quickly. (laughs)
0: <laughs> but, but it's
1: not, say well this is you're not young. this is not marketed towards for to no me,
0: no so. no you're <laughs> young you're young enough look you're young i think i think i think I'm older than you so i i don't know I'm not sure know,
1: man i am 47 oh. so I'm up there so. got you i'm 48 <laughs> yes so you're young by definition uh, if think. you say so if you say so all right now i'm gonna ask you to grade our president now you gave him an a plus after his first year. And I read I was like, 8 plus? Really? Okay, fine. So what about, what about now? What do you grade, right. Joe Biden?
0: All right. All right. All right. First of all, I defend my grade. This okay. was a one-year grade. I defend my grade. I will admit you are a writer. I am a writer. Sometimes the editor has a, a significant <laughs> role. I'm not yes, passing the does. buck.
1: I'm not
0: passing the buck. John
1: has a way with the titles.
0: With the title. And listen, I may have uh-huh. suggested, I, I honestly can't remember if I suggested this or uh-huh. not. Was I trying to be provocative? Yes, but intentionally so. I wasn't trying to be clickbaity. I, some of my readers suggest, oh, it's a clickbaity title. I'm like, I'm not, of course I want everyone to click on my article, duh. Right, but I wasn't right. trying to be clickbaity, right? I was trying to, I wanted to make a strong argument about the idea of, well, hold on a second, people. Hold on, hold on. Because at the time in January, there were all these takes. Joe Biden is limping. He's Mm -hmm. struggling. He's failing. And I'm like, wait, wait a second. A year ago, not to mention the few years that preceded it, this country was trapped in the backseat of a flaming car that was careening off a cliff. And now the fire's out and we're driving steadily in the other direction. And what you're telling me is, I don't know, this driver, he's a little slow, he's a little pokey. Are you kidding me? And so what I do in the article is I just give people a a reminder and I bring my receipts all linked to, to the original source material of, let's just remember what I mean when I say we're in a flaming car heading over a cliff, the disasters we were living through. And the unending string of disasters that Donald Trump had wrought upon us. And say what you will about Joe Biden, I'd say that honestly, from a like batting average as a president standpoint, he's probably batting about 250. I mean, which is, I'd say like a little above league average. He did have some historic accomplishments in terms of big landmark legislation that he passed. People undersell the impact of the American Rescue Plan. Three million American children lifted out of poverty. Do you know what the poverty line is in this country? If you are below the poverty line, you are in staggering poverty. Do you know that 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 children under 18 are the are the poorest group in this country? That is that is a a matter of national shame. So accomplishing lifting three million children out of poverty and accomplishing the infrastructure bill and accomplishing the boost to healthcare and the turnaround in deployment of the vaccine that, that took us from the, the the razor's edge with the pandemic. All of these things are massive, massive accomplishments. Now, did Joe Biden have some errors, some mistakes? Yes, and that's where I know the title is provocative because I, like I said, I'm grading on a curve. You're the professor here. You do this from time to time, I am sure. <laughs> I'm grading on a curve because we were in flaming car heading over cliff. Now we are not A plus, A plus, okay? (laughs) But yes, I mean, was the withdrawal from Afghanistan, was that painful? Did we lose 13 Americans? Did we lose hundreds of, of Afghans in the process? Yes, but look back in history and show me a war that ended without tragedy and pain. I can't find one. Did did we, should we have had more masks available in the summer of 2021? Yes, that was a logistics failure. It is small in comparison to the massive logistics success of the vaccine deployment. And the list goes on and on. The final one I will say before I actually answer your question, see how much I just filibustered there? Matt Robeson for (laughs) Senate. The final one I'll say is, well, B- b- inflation, inflation. Look, I just had the noted economist Mark Zandi on Beyond Politics. I, yes, I'm plugging Beyond Politics. I want everybody to subscribe. Just oh, do yeah. me a favor. Listen to what, listen to my, the sound of my voice for the next 60 seconds. But just go over wherever you listen to your podcast. Just hit follow on Beyond Politics. I, I, I hope, I think it'll be worthwhile. So we had Mark Zandi on and he broke it down. He brought his receipts too. Inflation is almost all caused by Russia invasion and the pandemic. Say with me, people, the Russian invasion and the pandemic. Do we blame Joe Biden for this? No. The effect of the American Rescue Plan spending last year, virtually zero when it comes to inflation. And
1: Zandi oh, lays out- in. Hold on, oh go hold on. on. So that's new. So I, I get the whole Russia invasion thing. I mean, I can kind of link it in my head to Ukraine and, and the fact that there's no grain coming out of Russian oil or something like that. Then when you say the pandemic, I'm thinking, okay, fine. I mean, I'm not an economics major, but I kind of have some general idea. So people had a lot of money. They weren't spending it. So now they're spending a lot, right? Right. So there's a, there's a, and supply demand for supply chains.
0: Yeah. Supply and and demand
1: supply chain. Yeah. But what about the, so, so now I'm kind of pushing back a little bit. So, so what about the decision to not allow people to live their normal lives? That sort of built up all that extra cash that is now flooding the market. And then two, what about all the stimulus checks, which gave people a lot of money? So I think,
0: let me take that in reverse order, not to confuse people. The spending, we spent about $5 trillion in this country in pandemic economic relief. Mm -hmm. Four plus trillion of it was bipartisan under Donald Trump. So what the critics, the Biden critics would like to believe, would like to have one believe is, okay, we did all of this, but it was just this last bit under Biden that's responsible for inflation. Actually, if you look at the international comparison, there there, there are two pieces we can find from the international data. One is that economically, the US has fared far better than our European counterparts in most measures, jobs, unemployment, open positions, economic growth. That's because we took very robust measures to protect ourselves from the pandemic-induced recession. Mm -hmm. So we are clearly doing better than our international peers. Well, what about the inflation piece? Well, it turns out that inflation around the world and in our nearest comparison countries the UK, Australia, countries in Europe, Germany, inflation's about the same. It's almost exactly the same as it is in here. So was our pandemic spending, was the American rescue plan under Joe Biden responsible for German inflation too? I don't think so. So I I All so right. the and Zandi does a great job of unpacking this. He's also modeled it, and, and there's a chart. If you follow me on Twitter, so if you, if you go, and I know you've put that up on the crawl. Mm-hmm. I'm at Matt L Robeson. I just posted this. I posted the whole thread from the Zandi interview and his numbers, and you can you can look at the modeling. So, so that's the that's the pandemic piece of this. As far sorry, that, that's the inflation piece. Mm-hmm. As far as the pandemic piece goes, this is so hard because this is what happens after a hurricane and you have a successful evacuation. No one gets hurt. Everyone says, well, we overdid it. Look at that. Looks like the government crying wolf again when we don't have a successful evacuation and there's a lot of harm caused. It's like failures, incompetence. So I, I would, I would say that benefit to cost we benefited a great deal more from pandemic restrictions that saved lives and decreased economic impact overall. And the other sneaky secret, and this is something that I put into that article that you were referencing is, I don't know. I mean, I think that if you look at the map of where there were mask mandates and restrictions, even at the end of 2021, most of the country they were gone so there were all these headlines at the beginning of this year democratic governors scrambling to lift mask mandates and pandemic era restrictions it's like okay you're the last ones for most of the country for most people in america that is a long gone thing so mm-hmm. i just don't think that the pandemic was having a significant impact on people's lifestyle and i don't think it has been for for much of the last year Am I wrong? Okay. Maybe I'm wrong about that.
1: Well, I mean, here in Virginia, we lifted our mandates. I think as soon as we got our a Republican governor, I think he lifted yeah, right, mandates. right. Right. Very so first was last thing year, last year. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. So, okay, fine. What's the what's the what's the grade before I move oh, on? Oh, what's here? the grade? We're hitting up on the out on the hour. Oh, outline.
0: I was going to squirm out of that, man.
1: <laughs> what's the grade? You can give a range. You could you could say, well, it's
0: all right. I, I look. I, I gave the on the curve a plus for year mm-hmm. one, and I I think I think that it is fair to say that politically, we could be in a better spot than we are now. There were some unforced errors. The Build Back Better plan. I I, I know I know my friends who are further left than me are going to be angry at me for saying this. But the way we went about that was a mistake I've had as a guest, Ben Ritz from the Progressive Policy Institute, who coined this idea of, what if we had just made Build Back Better? No one knows what's in it. What if we had just said, this is the kids in COVID bill? It's kids and COVID, kids and COVID. And we had just made it about child care and whatever pandemic needs we still had. And that was it. And we had kept it a little smaller, a little more restrained we could have gotten Joe Manchin, we could have gotten Kirsten Cinema. we could have gotten a smaller, more measurable thing done. I think there were tonal things we could have, that the president could have accomplished. All of that said, I still think he's in B-plus range. I still think that you have to factor in that he passed historically huge pieces of legislation in 2021. He's still successfully ushered us out of that stage of the pandemic, deployed the most successful mass vaccination campaign in history. All of that's got to matter for something. So, Mm -hmm. And then finally, I, I know that it's a low bar, but you have to give some of the comparative. The curve is still there. You have to say, my gosh, we're seeing in real time from the January 6th committee that our last president tried to foment a coup. And so we have a we have a relatively normal, anodyne president who's he's he's a little clumsy at times, but he's trying to do mostly the right stuff. I don't get this "let's go Brandon" thing. I don't get the vitriolic reaction to the man. Like he's not a culture warrior. He's not like he's not he's not a divisive figure. He's trying. And so Mm -hmm. B plus, B plus for me. What do you? What about you?
1: I will say he's average. He's an average president. I. But um, how do you grade Professor Graham?
0: It's your average.
1: <laughs> well, that, that that would be a C, C plus. I, I oh think he's, man, I think he's you're,
0: a... you're losing all your students for next semester. <laughs> they're not
1: going to sign yeah. if your average is a
0: C, C minus. They're like, I'm going to take something else. That, that. That's
1: that's true. They'll put it on rate my professor. This guy's a bad grader.
0: Take somebody else. Exactly. <laughs> this guy's a, my average. About an A minus.
1: All right. Well, this has been fun, Matt. And I and I like to keep the guests to about an hour if possible. So let's kind of end with this. What's next for you?
0: What's next? I'm very proud of the fact that in May, the Beyond Politics podcast hit the top, we cracked the top 40 on the Apple Politics Podcasts charts. And that's great. And it's a great start. And what's next for me is I am just really dedicated to getting great guests smart thoughtful people like you and i'm getting you back that's one of the things oh yeah i'll come back you're coming back all right i should have made that a question not a statement we're getting you back (laughs) but we're getting smart thoughtful interesting people back and i am going to try my darndest to keep offering people quality thoughtful engaging interesting you're going to learn something you're going to have some fun with it content on video and audio, and I want to crack the top 20 and I want to stay there. I want to stay there. So that's, that's, that's my goal.
1: I think that's going to happen. I, I do sense a shift away from people looking for the, the, the culture warrior or the far left people who are trying the outrage machine type podcasts and looking for more thoughtful podcasts like yours. So I'm sure it's going to happen. And I think when, when you had me on, I was like, man, this guy's a natural. I mean, it's just a matter of time. So. Oh,
0: thanks. I yeah. Well, I appreciate. It. We always we always have great conversations. We're we're gonna run this back this time. We'll do we'll do it as a home and home. We'll do it on we'll do it on my show, and we'll do it as video too because you're really good on video. We got you, oh, you. well, you, thank you. <laughs> you've got a face that sells. But it's like I I kind of trust this guy. You know? <laughs> we gotta get. We've got to insert more advertising. It's like we got to get a good brand that wants to be associated with this with this trustworthy face.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe. We'll see how it goes. That would be nice. Okay, Matt Robeson. Thank you for joining me on another episode of my Being series. My pleasure.